You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. Let us open our Bibles together this morning. We turn to the Gospel according to Matthew chapter 3, the verses 1 to 12. Matthew 3 has been chosen in connection with our text of this morning, which is taken from Matthew 11. And there we read about the ministry of John the Baptist. Now let's listen then to the word of our God as we find it in Matthew 3, 1 to 12. In those days John the Baptist came preaching in the desert of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. This is he who was spoken of through the prophet Isaiah, a voice of one calling in the desert, Prepare the way for the Lord make straight paths for him. John's clothes were made of camel's hair, and he had a leather belt around his waist. His food was locusts and wild honey. People went out to him from Jerusalem and all Judea and the whole region of the Jordan. Confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to where he was baptizing, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not think that you can say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. I tell you that out of these stones God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but after me will come one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not fit to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn, and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. I preached to you this morning from the word of our God, as you find it in Matthew chapter 11, verse 2 to verse 19. When John heard in prison what Jesus was doing, he sent his disciples to ask him, Are you the one who was to come, or should we expect someone else? Jesus replied, Go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cured, the deaf hear and the dead are raised, and the good news is preached to the poor. Blessed is the man who does not fall away on account of me. As John's disciples were leaving, Jesus began to speak to the crowd about John. What did you go out into the desert to see? A reed swayed by the wind? If not, what did you go out to see? A man dressed in fine clothes? No, those who wear fine clothes are in king's palaces. Then what did you go out to see? A prophet. Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is written, I will send my messenger ahead of you 
who will prepare your way before you. I tell you the truth, among those born of women, there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Yet he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has been forcefully advancing and forceful men lay hold of it. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if you are willing to accept it, he is the Elijah who was to come. He who has ears, let him hear. To what can I compare this generation? They are like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling out to others. We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say, He has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, Here is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But wisdom is proved right by her actions. Thus far, the reading of God's word. Well, of a congregation of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ, there are many passages in the Word of God that are easy to read and to understand as well as apply. And then there are other passages as well that are more difficult and more enigmatic. And we read them and we read them again and we scratch our head and we wonder exactly what is the Word of God saying here? What are we to understand And what lessons are we to take home from this? Well, beloved, that also applies to our text, which is before us here this morning. This text taken from Matthew chapter 11, where the Lord Jesus says that John the Baptist is both the greatest and the least in the kingdom of heaven. And we wonder how that is possible. And we also wonder what the Lord Jesus means when he talks and refers to children in the marketplaces. And of course we wonder about what it means that the kingdom of heaven will suffer violence and that men will take it by force. How are we to understand all of this? What really is the Lord Jesus referring to and speaking about? Well, beloved, if we are to grasp the meaning of these words, we first of all need to note the context of them. For they were spoken at an important time in the ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ. Up until this point, you can look at that and see it in the Gospels, he had always been much acclaimed. People had thronged around him, they had come to him from north and south and east and west. They wanted to hear his gracious words and they wanted to witness his powerful miracles. The Savior's popularity was at a climax. But at the same time, our Savior knew that it was also, in a sense, at a turning point. Soon the people would begin to drift away. They would turn from him and ultimately turn against him. And his words would begin to offend them instead of to attract them The man of fame would become the man of sorrows and the road of acclaim would become the road of rejection. 
the movement from great esteem to growing indifference to rigid unbelief and ultimately to violent rejection was approaching. Yes, and beloved, it is precisely at this particular turning point in the Gospel of Matthew and in the ministry of our Savior that the Lord Jesus is confronted with the person and the ministry and work of John the Baptist. His followers come and they ask the Christ, Are you the one who is to come? Or should we be expecting somebody else? And you'll notice the Lord Jesus replies, Go back and report to John what you hear and what you see. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk. Those who have leprosy are cured. The deaf hear. The dead are raised. And good news is preached to the poor. And blessed is the man who does not fall away on account of me. That was his reply to John the Baptist. But you'll notice in our text that's not all the Lord Jesus says about John. For he goes on to speak about his position, his preaching. And he links it in a way to his own ministry and to his own preaching. He draws certain parallels between how the people respond to John and how they respond to him. And he does it all within the context of the kingdom of heaven and the wisdom of God. And so, beloved, I'd like to preach to you this morning on the theme, The Lord Jesus Reveals God's Wisdom in the ministry of John the Baptist. And we shall see that this wisdom of God is proclaimed, embraced, reviled, and vindicated. So this wisdom of God is proclaimed, embraced, reviled, and vindicated. My beloved, as a result of John's uncertainty about whether or not Jesus is the Messiah, some people were ready to dismiss John the Baptist and characterize him as an unbeliever. How dare he ask, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? The effrontery of it all. Who does John think that he is anyway? What a two-faced individual. First, he proclaims the coming of the Christ, and, and when he does finally come, then John begins to waver and to waffle. Is he or isn't he? You see, there were people who were ready at this moment to consign John the Baptist to the ash heap of history as a weak and vacillating personality. But you'll notice the Lord Jesus does not share their assessment. He reminds them about what they went out into the wilderness to see when they went to listen to John. Would you say he's like a reed swaying back and forth in the wind? And if so, what was it that attracted you to a trembling weed? Or would you say that you went out into the desert to see a man dressed in fine clothes, meaning someone who's all pomp but no substance, no backbone? 
Now the people knew that John was not like that at all. They knew that John the Baptist was bold and forthright. He was no respecter of persons. He took on all comers, rich and poor, weak and powerful. Indeed so, bold was John the Baptist that his reward was not a palace or a promotion, but a dungeon. But yet the Lord Jesus Christ says there is more to John the Baptist than simply a sturdy character. There is also his office. John was a prophet. And indeed, John, Jesus says, was more than a prophet. He was the messenger of the Lord. He was the front man for the Lord's coming. John was the trailblazer for the Christ. John announced Christ's coming, softened up the people for his coming, and stressed the need to prepare for his coming. As a faithful herald, John had first warned the people that the kingdom was coming and they must prepare for it. He said, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And secondly, he had clearly announced the coming of the king of the kingdom when he said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And thirdly, he had recognized his proper place in all of this when he said, he must increase, but I must decrease. Truly, John had fulfilled his prophetic duties faithfully. Yes, and the Lord Jesus recognizes this as well. But he does more. He says, among those born of women, there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Yet he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Well, what are we to make of those words? And how are we to reconcile them? How can you be at the same time the greatest and the least? Logic demands that you be either one or the other, but never both. My beloved, in this case, it is both. First of all, John the Baptist is the greatest. And what does the Lord Jesus mean by that? Well, the scholars continue to discuss and debate and argue about how we are to interpret this, but... But surely the answer is not so difficult. When the Savior calls John the Baptist the greatest, he is not just referring here to John's personality or even to John's office. Now he's referring to both of those things plus the time when it is that John fulfills his calling. John is the greatest because it was he who was chosen to prepare the way for the Christ. He's the forerunner. He saw the kingdom of God come. He met the king of the kingdom. He charted the way for him. 
Yes, and I ask you, who else has been so privileged? Moses was a great prophet, as was Elijah, as well as Isaiah and Jeremiah, and so many others. But none of them saw the day of salvation finally dawn. They all had to greet it from afar. But not John. He saw it coming. He had a hand in its coming. And so of all of God's Old Testament servants and prophets, none receives a greater honor than John the Baptist. In a sense, he sees the Word become flesh. He's the link between the Old Testament and the Christ. But you know, at the same time, there's also another side to this. For while on the one hand John is the greatest, on the other hand, you can also say he is the least. He who is least, the Lord Jesus says, in the kingdom of God, is greater than he. And what does the Lord Jesus mean with those words? Well, he's pointing out that while John prepared the way for the kingdom and its king, he never really got to hear the full proclamation of the kingdom. I remind you, John never witnessed any of the miracles of the kingdom. John, in a sense, was deprived. He nibbled, but he never ate deeply. Now his imprisonment prevented all of that because he never saw the blind receive their sight or the lame walking or the lepers being cleansed or the poor comforted or the dead raised. He cannot be compared to all those who are in the kingdom. A simple New Testament believer is more than John. For such a person knows in detail not only what John knows in part. No, such a person saw fully. John was not witness to the resurrection or the crucifixion. He did not receive the Spirit at Pentecost. You see, John is the greatest. But at the same time, John is also the least. But of course you may be asking yourself, why did the Lord Jesus picture and paint him in this way? Well, I think he does so for two reasons. In the first place, the Lord Jesus wants his followers never to despise the work that John had done. They must have a proper view of him and of the great work that he's accomplished. And the second reason is that while they must recognize John's greatness, they must realize that there is a real sense in which they are even greater. There is a sense in which he says his current listeners are even more privileged than John and all of the saints of the Old Testament. Which of them were allowed to experience the joy of the kingdom? Which of them ever saw the king of the kingdom in action? Which of them ever heard the great proclamation of the kingdom? 
Truly here, the Lord Jesus is saying, is something that should astound all of you people. They've been taught since they were young to look up to Father Abraham and Moses and Elijah and David and and all of those spiritual Hall of Famers of the Old Testament. But now the Lord Jesus tells them that they, simple people, most of them are greater. They receive an even greater blessing. What the Old Testament saints longed to see, they witnessed. What the Old Testament saints hungered for and prayed for and wanted to see. They are able to experience. You see, the Lord Jesus is saying, even you, the least believer in the kingdom of heaven, is greater, more blessed, richer, than the greatest Old Testament saint. What a privileged position you are in. Yes, and think of it, beloved, if that was such a great thing in the days of the Lord Jesus. If the believers then were in a great position, what about us as believers today? I remind you the revelation of God in Jesus Christ has become even fuller. We look over the entire Old Testament and the entire New Testament. We know about Jesus' earthly ministry from start to finish. We read about His mighty works in the book of Acts. We have the wisdom of the Spirit of Christ through Paul and John and James and Peter. You see, if the New Testament believers are richer than the Old Testament believers, then we, all of us, are even richer. We have the full and complete revelation of God in Jesus Christ. Oh, true enough, we do not see Jesus in the flesh but we see him through the power of the Spirit. He lives in us and he works in us. You know, as we look back over the history of God's dealings with his people, we can say that we are the richest believers yet. In a sense, We are the greatest as well. And that's nice to know, right? It's even an honor. But you know, in Scripture, honors never seem to come without responsibilities. The greater the honor, the greater the responsibility. In short, our Lord is saying that we have so much. And that begs the question, what are we doing with all of our riches? Do we cherish God's fuller revelation in Jesus Christ? 
Do we rejoice in it every day? Do we read it with eagerness, study it with dedication, and apply it with determination? But, beloved, while Jesus tells us that John was both the greatest and the least, that he was privileged indeed to proclaim the wisdom of God, he also says something else. For he goes on and he adds, from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has been forcefully advancing, and forceful men lay hold of it. When we hear those words, again, we are somewhat at a loss. How can the kingdom of God advance forcefully? And and even more, how is it possible for forceful, or as some other translations say, for violent men to lay hold of it? If the kingdom were material or earthly or political, we might be able to understand it. But since it is spiritual, How can this realm be seized by force? Surely that cannot happen. But what then are we to do with our text? We might opt for another translation. For example, it's possible to translate from the days of John the Baptist until now the kingdom of heaven is pressing forward vigorously and vigorous men are eagerly taking possession of it. Although I think in the end, no matter what translation you look at or what paraphrase, you are still confronted with the same problem. So what is our Lord saying here? I think, beloved, that what our Lord is saying is that from John's time up until the present, many people who heard the wisdom of God proclaim, who heard about the coming kingdom, responded to it positively. They heard the preaching, and the preaching made a deep and abiding impression on them. They became more and more eager to embrace the blessings offered. They hung on every word. They would lunge out at salvation. They would storm the doors in order to get in. Here truly you can say we're people who did not greet the gospel with a yawn or a shrug but with great desire and eagerness. They would not be denied. They knew their need, and it is as if they were forcing their way into the kingdom. And of course, this does not mean that one can crash the gates of heaven. No matter how much physical force is applied or how much ingenuity is expended, we will never accomplish that. No, salvation comes by grace through faith. But at the same time, the Lord Jesus is showing us how desperate and determined some people are to embrace this salvation. How eager they are to learn more about God's Word. 
How aggressive they are when it comes to laying hold of their spiritual treasures. Yes, and what the Lord Jesus here refers to is something that you can still hear about today. Not so long ago, I got another notice that from some organization reminding me that there are still believers in some parts of the world who are copying out the Bible by hand, page after page, because it remains a forbidden book. And I was also told about people who memorize large parts of the Scriptures so that in case their Bibles are taken, they have the Word of God in their minds and in their hearts. And I hear about people walking 30 or 40 kilometers in order to sit under the preaching of the Gospel. And I hear about people who listen for two hours or more and are still not satisfied. And I read about a believer who comes from a great distance with his two sons in order to have them educated by a missionary and who sits there all night when the missionary says no until finally he relents. And I read about a blind Arab Christian who gets up at three o'clock in the morning in order to attend a prayer meeting. Well, what a great thing it is to see such eagerness, such aggressiveness, such determination. The history of the church is full of it. The Bible is full of it. Are we still full of it too? How earnestly do we today in comfortable, cozy Canada desire to worship the Lord? How eager are we when it comes to the study of God's Word and how aggressive are we when it comes to the matters of the Spirit? The sermon goes longer than expected and we get restless. Bible study is scheduled and we come unprepared. A course on one or other relevant topic is held and we have no time. Catechism instruction is given and we have a difficult time concentrating. Well, however, do we realize that we cannot sleep or slip and slide our way into the kingdom of God? Do we realize that there is this sense of which the Lord Jesus is speaking of that it requires earnest endeavor, untiring energy, and utmost exertion? And indeed, maybe we need to ask ourselves from time to time, is the kingdom of heaven suffering force? Because of me? Am I a forceful man, spiritually speaking, or a forceful woman who's still trying to get hold of it by force? In the days of John the Baptist, there were some people like that. 
In the days of the Lord Jesus' ministry on earth, there were some people like that. But as the Lord Jesus looks out at the crowd around him, he sees other things as well. He sees many people who are like children in the marketplaces. As he says, to what shall I compare this generation? They're like children singing or sitting in the marketplace and calling out to others, we played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking and they say he has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking and they say here is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Do you know what the Lord Jesus is saying with those words? Here he's describing the reaction of a great many people to his preaching and teaching, as well as to John's. He says they're like children. They're childish in terms of their reaction. And obviously the Lord Jesus had observed that This is a quality that children possess. They love to play games. Especially games that mimic adult activities. Yes, and what better games to mimic or activities to mimic than the extremes of weddings and funerals. On one occasion they want to play wedding. Let Jane be the bride. Let Joan be the maid of honor. Liz and Mary can be the bridesmaids. John, you be the groom. Paul, you be the best man. Peter and Albert can be the ushers and Philip can be the minister. And so the let's pretend drama begins. But you know, it doesn't last too long. Soon voices can be heard. This is sissy. Who wants to play this airy-fairy stuff anyway? Let's play funeral instead. That's more serious business. I'll be the funeral director. Peter, Albert, Paul, and John can be the pallbearers. Jane, Joan, and Liz can be the mourners. Mary can be the corpse. But no sooner has the corpse been laid to rest, the procession begun and someone pipes up, this is dumb. Who wants to play such a morbid game? A good size argument erupts and the charges fly back and forth. You never know what you want to do. You, we play wedding and you call it sissy. We play funeral and you say it's too sad. What do you want to play anyway? And so all the players are in a huff and they all begin to sulk and they all act put out and quarrelsome. They're never satisfied, it seems. And the Lord Jesus says, that's exactly the way this generation acts. You know, when John came down the pike, you all dismissed him as an oddity. Who in the world wears a garment of camel's hair and eats locusts and wild honey? And who in the world stays out of the sticks as a preacher? 
And what a preaching. It's so somber, so austere, so depressing. He must be mad or otherwise an evil spirit has gotten hold of him. That had been their reaction to John. And then the Lord Jesus had come and he had not been all gloom and doom. He befriended tax collectors and sinners. He didn't rake the people over the coals. He went to parties. He didn't avoid them. He accepted an invitation to a wedding and he even made wine by the barrels full. He invited the weary and the overburdened, the weak and the sinful to come to him and to find rest. And surely you think that will find favor with the people. What has soured them on John will surely attract them to Jesus. But alas, it is not so at all. Soon they begin to complain about him too. He's too easygoing, you know. He fraternizes a little too freely. He mixes with the wrong crowd and has poor company and discretion. And as a result of this two-faced reaction, the Lord uses this illustration of children in the marketplace. Just like them, he says to his hearers, you people are peevish and unpredictable and distasteful or dissatisfied. You listen neither to John, nor do you want to listen to Jesus. Neither the thunder of judgment nor the gentle invitations of the Christ change them. The message of the kingdom never enters their hearts. John was too gloomy. Jesus was too cheery. What it all indicates is that this generation was playing with eternal issues. They were curious, but their curiosity didn't satisfy. They wanted to be entertained, but not to learn. They saw no real pressing need within themselves. They didn't see either God's judgment or His grace. Had they been wise, they would have repented at the preaching of John the Baptist and they would have found joy and rest in the proclamation of Jesus Christ. But now they found neither. They found neither. And beloved, when you read all of that, and when you understand all of this, you can surely not fail to see that there is in all of this a warning for us too. To us who profess faith in Jesus Christ. What little value some of us place in the privileges of God's kingdom. The Lord here warns us not to play with our privileges. Our opportunities in the kingdom of God are priceless. 
So easily we get attached to the things of this world and we settle down amidst the comforts of life and we become less and less attached and loyal to our Lord. And we begin to major in minor issues and to minor and major issues. And all the while there are people who hunger and thirst for righteousness. They are pressing after the things that we are in danger of neglecting. They are storming the kingdom. I take, for example, Reverend Dong. He goes to China, and the people beg him and beseech him to stay. They're pressing into the kingdom. He comes here to Canada, and he has to go to his countrymen, and he has to beg them to come. Strange, isn't it? Strange, isn't it, how our affluence and our materialism and our secularism and all the rest of our isms can so easily zap our vitality and undermine our zeal in our determination. And so, beloved, let us take these words to heart and assess our lives according to them. Are we still eager to serve the Lord? Are we still excited about the good news of the kingdom of God? Let us make sure that our reaction is right and fitting. For as the Lord Jesus says in verse 19, wisdom is proved right by her actions. When John demanded repentance and when the Lord Jesus held out the hope of salvation to the down and outs in Israel, then both were proven right. And time has shown John was not possessed by a demon. And by the same token, history has shown the Lord Jesus was not a glutton and a drunkard. Now both proclaimed the kingdom of God and the wisdom of God. And if we are to enter into the kingdom and to live in the kingdom and to benefit from this wisdom, then we must listen to their proclamation and embrace it through faith. Embrace it with great desire and great eagerness. Embrace it and never let up when it comes to the blessings of the kingdom. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.